This is the second in our special series of Global Roll Call episodes. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. In the last Global Roll Call episode, you heard from Hannah, a listener, and from poets David Trinidad, Alice Notley, John Murillo, Tina Cheng, Kathy Park Hong, Ada Limon, and M. Norbessi Phillip. In this episode, you'll hear from three commonplace listeners, Allison Whipple, Allie, and Logan from Madison as well as former Commonplace guests Nick Flynn, Erica Meitner, Sabrina Oramark, Marcelo Hernandez-Castillo, Alicia Ostreicher, and then writer and translator Jennifer Croft will read a short essay by Nobel Prize-winning author Olga Tukarchuk about COVID-19 that Jennifer translated. In future episodes, you'll hear from Yin Yi, Rita Dove, Kava Akbar, Stephanie Burt, D.A. Powell, Victoria Chang, Alicia Joe Rabins, and many other guests. When organizing this episode, I found myself putting Olga Tukarchuk's essay at the end, and then at the beginning, and then before and after each of the other pieces. It seemed essential, wonderful, in every position, and I missed it every time I moved it. Like M. Norbessi Phillips' short essay on COVID, which ended our most recent episode, Tokarchuk's piece somehow captures the variety and complexity of so many of the various things I heard folks say about their experiences. The desire for disruption of norms that are harmful to human, animals, and the planet. The grief and shock of recent loss of life. The fear that even when COVID-19 is over, and when will it be over and what will it being over look like? The fear that COVID-19 will have caused long-term suffering and greater inequality and injustice. Some felt relief at having permission, no choice really, for more introspective time. More than one writer told me a version of, I was built for this, when talking about physical distancing. For others, the loneliness and isolation were debilitating. For some, the quarantine resulted in increased and unremitting caretaking responsibilities that made it impossible for writers to write, read, or recharge. For some, Zoom is an incredibly helpful way to be connected, For others, it's creepy and artificial. I heard about economic hardship, physical and emotional suffering, fear, anger, as well as appreciation, gratitude, and new beginnings. When I set out to compile personal updates from listeners and guests, I did so as a friend, a reader, a writer, maybe an amateur archivist. No one on the Commonplace team is a journalist, economist, or sociologist. So I present these stories to you as stories, not data. I'm not making grand claims about COVID-19 or about how all or even most artists are faring during these upside-down times. 
every person I spoke with has had myriad beautifully confounding factors that influence how they feel, including where they live, whether they live alone, physical differences, mental health history, history of trauma or illness, financial security or insecurity. And I have a sense that actually how someone was doing or feeling was based in large part on the particular week or day or hour in which I spoke with them. That said, certain themes emerged. Folks with children seemed unsurprisingly and across the board to report a lot of anxiety, stress, exhaustion, and irritability. Except for people who had babies under a year or kids between the ages of 10 and 13. Almost everyone found structure, routine, self-forgiveness, physical movement, especially walking, helpful. We have some great patron extras for this episode, including recipes, writing assignments, and recommendations for books and other media. We also will have some fantastic books for the Commonplace Book Club members. I'll mention those later in the episode. Please visit commonpodcast.com for more information about the people and texts we mention in this episode, and of course, to sign up to become a patron. As you know, Commonplace is made possible by patron support. The essay by Olga Tukarchuk will be at the end of this episode. Skip to that if you want to hear it first. But now let's start with this lovely message from listener Allison Whipple. Hi, Commonplace team. Longtime fan Allison Whipple from Austin, Texas out here. Um, I know I'm a little late to the check-in um, that you invited everyone to do, but I still wanted to say hi. It's been tough for me to reach out because in many ways, you know, we can't escape living in this reality. But on some level, I needed to take a break from talking about it. I just had to like be in it and not talk about how I was doing. But uh, I'm doing okay, And I'm so grateful that the podcast is still around. And um, with my free time, Rachel, I finally read Sound Machine. I adore it. Uh, It's my favorite thing you've done. And uh, I'm a huge fan of all of your stuff. I loved it so much that it actually pulled me out of a funk. And I started putting together a chat book from an abandoned manuscript uh, entirely because there's a part of Sound Machine I love so much that I uh, wanted to use it for an epigraph, which I suppose is not the, I don't know, it's not the worst reason to like revive uh, your work that's been sitting in the uh, the draft drawer forever. So anyway, uh, just wanted to say hi, and I uh, I look forward to maybe the, the roll call episode and hearing what other people are doing and whatever else comes next. I hope everyone at Commonplace is doing okay. Thank you, Allison. I am so glad to hear that Sound Machine and Commonplace have been able to keep you company and inspire you during this time. And of course, I'm curious which part of Sound Machine you're going to use as an epigraph. I really identify with the need to sometimes not talk or think about COVID-19. I find myself going back and forth between freaking out about the news and the future, trying to ignore the news and thoughts of the future, and needing to talk about what's going on in my life and in other people's lives, because sometimes acting like everything is normal is what makes me feel crazier than anything. Everyone at Commonplace is and isn't doing okay. 
In our bonus patron-only episode, the Commonplace team members talked in detail about our struggles. Doreen Wang's mother became ill right as COVID-19 hit Taiwan. Diagnosis had to be delayed for a few weeks, and after that, she was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and is now receiving treatment. Jay Hammond's brother and his brother's partner, who both live in Brooklyn, got COVID. Jay's beloved grandmother was hospitalized and had to undergo leg amputation surgery, and Jay was unable to visit his grandmother to support her or his brother and his brother's partner. Luckily, all three of them are doing well. Christine is doing okay. She isn't sick, hasn't been sick since COVID was identified in California, even though she was very, very sick in February and can't help but wonder if that was COVID-19. But many of her friends have been sick with the virus. For her, a different illness has created the most panic and fear. Her cousin's oldest child, who is seven, was diagnosed last year with metalloblastoma. She was just found to have another tumor. For weeks before COVID hit, I was in New York City in a kind of pre-COVID lockdown. My oldest son, Moses, was home from college, struggling with a major depressive episode. You'll hear from him in a later episode, but I'll just say for now that weeks of vigilance and worry about his safety and well-being, not sleeping hardly at all myself, led me to have several serious panic attacks and become concerned about my own mental well-being. When I decided it was unsafe and unethical to attend AWP, I reached a kind of breaking point of feeling trapped and scared and helpless. I left New York City for my house in Maine on March 8th, hoping that being alone for a while would help me stabilize. But the situation in New York City deteriorated quickly. Abram, my middle son, on spring break from his first year in college, joined me in Maine just a few days later. My husband, Moses, and Judah drove up a few days after that. The first few weeks here were oppressive. Abram and I were worried that Josh, Moses, or Judah had been exposed and tried to semi-quarantine. It was not clear whether or not taking Moses away from his therapists and psychiatrist was a terrible idea or not. I was barely functional myself and felt like I was running a psychiatric hospital without training, backup, or a sense of the future. It has been difficult, to say the least. But in our team conversation, we also talked about moments of gratitude and grace. Doreen is relieved she got to be in Taiwan during her mother's diagnosis and illness. Jay and his partner both landed academic jobs, although not at the same institutions. And as I record this, Jay is in the process of moving from Phoenix to North Carolina. Christine has been enjoying her dog more than ever and is figuring out how to work in her small home with her partner, Colin, who also works from home. I've been coming to this part of Maine every year for 15 years, but I've never been here in March, April, or May. It's beautiful and is finally helping me stabilize in many ways. I'm becoming someone else undergoing several major shifts, not least of which is that after a lifetime of failing to understand why anyone would want the burden of caring for a pet, 
of feeling apprehension, almost aversion to non-human animals, I developed an obsession with getting a dog. Hearing Christine and other friends and commonplace guests talk about their relationships with their pets gave me courage to follow through on this desire that shocked everyone who knows me well. Our puppy, Ginsburg, named both for Ruth Bader and Alan, is 10 weeks old. I'm exhausted and distracted and deeply smitten with this five-pound wonder. She is a source of incomprehensible joy. I'm sure I'll talk more about her in future episodes. Thank you to everyone who encouraged me to get a puppy, and my apologies to everyone, especially Dottie Lasky, for my previous failure to understand the depth and beauty of this attachment. Thank you also to everyone who agreed to speak with me for this and other Commonplace episodes and for trusting me with your stories. On April 7th, I called Nick Flynn at his home in upstate New York, where he is sheltering with his wife, Lily Taylor, and their 12-year-old daughter. How are you doing? Are you up in Maine? I'm up in Maine, and... Because um, uh, I, I know you've had, a, you've had a rough patch even before the pandemic, so... I, I had an incredibly rough patch, and I, and I, came, <laughs> I came up to Maine um, imagining that I was going to be here alone. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And um, it, I'm thrilled to be here. I feel very guilty about being away from New York at this time, mm. um, but I feel incredibly grateful to be here. And part of me also thinks maybe I don't want to go back to New York ever. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you imagine there's something you could be doing in New York right now that would be helpful? Nothing. Uh, yeah, that's that's the thing. It's like yeah, it's the thing we're supposed to do. I mean, we're not doctors, and so yeah. Not only would it not be would I not be helpful, but I would be more of a drain. And and what? Then why are you guilty not being in New York? Um, I think I feel guilty about being able to leave uh-huh. when yeah, when ma- yeah. many people are not able to do that. Um, sure, and I sure. think I have a feeling of um, emotionally as if I'm still kind of located in New York. And I guess I feel like in small ways I would be able to help my elderly neighbors, um, other people who live in my building. Sure, um, sure. But I think it's... Actually, um, I don't know if I would share this with everyone, but, but, but I feel like you'll get it. And then I feel like a, um, a significant amount of, of like my emotional response to this unprecedented in my lifetime crisis has to do with inherited intergenerational trauma. Um, and I think that um, I'm having some feelings that are totally appropriate to this situation, um, but some feelings that feel like if I really think about it, they may be um, identification that I've had over the years um, or unconscious stuff around my grandparents 
experience in uh, during World War II and my father's experience to some extent, um, you know, during World War II. He was born Nick in listened patiently while I told him um, an abbreviated of version of my father's um, and, family's and, immigration and, and, from and, and Paris the to the south of France heard, to Portugal uh, to New York to uh, Cuba and back to New York. This took quite a while. Nick then told me a detailed version of his exodus a few weeks earlier from New York City, which involved a quick two-day trip to Houston on a nearly empty plane, then back to New York, then to his place in upstate New York. When I asked how he was, he said he was doing well, appreciated being with his wife and daughter and teaching remotely, but that the mandate to be apart from others was psychically difficult. We realized while talking about how all of Nick's travel plans had been canceled that on the day we were speaking, both of us had been scheduled to be in San Francisco for readings. Nick has had three new books come out in the last year or so. His new collection of poetry from Grey Wolf, I Will Destroy You. Stay, a collection of collages, collaborations, and short interviews, including an excerpt of his commonplace conversation with me back in 2016 and his new memoir, This is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire, coming out this August from Norton. Nick says he feels sanguine about the canceled travel and grateful that the books are out in the world. Nick was disappointed that a performance he's been working on in Houston, an hour-long version of Nick's adaptation of a nine-volume work, Vala, by William Blake, has been postponed or possibly canceled. I asked Nick if there were any practices or parts of his new routine that have particularly helped him maintain his composure and health. He said he's continued to practice yoga online with recordings from his favorite teacher in Brooklyn and says that the day goes better when he does that. He's continued to go to 12-step meetings, but those have not translated as well to virtual space. Those have uh, been tough for me, really tough, like... The whole thing about it is to like be in a room with other people and to have like a, you know, to, you know, it's almost an accountability thing. Like I find it really easy if I'm on a Zoom 12-step meeting and there's like 180 people there to be like, I really can just walk out of the room right now. No one's going to notice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you sort of feel a little bit like you have to go to a meeting. Like whenever I go to a meeting, I kind of, I kind of hate it. For the first like 10 minutes, I'm like, I shouldn't be here. I could be doing something else. And then if I just sit there around actual physical people, that feeling goes away. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't go away now. It's just, <laughs> I just have it and then I just go away. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't figured that out yet. And also, like the whole Zoom thing, I did some with friends, like those Zoom meetings with friends. I did one last week and I just sort of was like the, I was like the, the grumpy person or something. I'm like, this, you know, my comment was just like, all I can think about looking at this, these little boxes of my friends in them is like, this is what it's going to be like when we're dead. Like, <laughs> you know, we're, we're all just going to be in little boxes, like looking at each other. Like, what's, like this is a nightmare. This is like, mm. I don't, and, and also, again, you can't really have a conversation. You, you, you one person talks at one time and mm-hmm. their little box lights up and then you just listen to it. You can't really have like a, an actual back and forth conversation in some way, especially mm-hmm. if there's more than, if there's like, you know, 10 people in the room or something, you know? I don't know. Are you speaking to your therapist over Zoom or over the phone or not at all? My therapist has been really MIA. Like, 
Um, <laughs> like, right. I, mean, I know. He's, I mean, you know, like last week, I was all set to meet with him, and he sent me a text that once a day. I, I have a COVID-related emergency. We can't meet. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Is he going to die? And, like, you know, he's just, you know, he's, just, he's in New York, and I think he's just dealing with a lot. So, oh. uh, And then the two weeks before that, like, in the last month, we, we had one session. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, which isn't so great, but it's just yeah. what it is. It's like what it is. So, yeah, this wouldn't be the time to only have one session. Should I be worried about you? It sounds like some of uh, your support. Would, would that help? <laughs> <laughs> if it would help, then sure. But I don't know. Like, is that there's some kind of magic in, like, a, a Jewish woman worrying about you? So. <laughs> I I love that you asked me that question. It's like the question you asked me. What the first thing I said about feeling guilty about being in New York? Would, would it help if you were there? <laughs> this is this is one of many reasons why your friends are just so important to me. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> um, no, it would not help. I guess. <laughs> I think we should worry. I think we should worry about everyone. Really, right yeah. now, like we should check in with everyone. Like I'm, I'm trying to like. I, you know, it's up and down. Like for me, it's up and down. And sometimes some in the day and some moments are fine. Some moments it's just, I'm, I'm never, I'm never that desperate. Like desperate for me would be like if I was going to like, like use drugs or something, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm nowhere near that. I've actually quit coffee like three mm-hmm. months ago, like all caffeine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. So like, it's like, you know, if you're in a, if you're in like a, a quarantine or in a pandemic where Things are scarce. How do I have to worry about coffee? <laughs> mm-hmm. like, I'm good. I can drink water and I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also, I'm also, it also is uh, just better for me psychically not to have caffeine in my system. Mm-hmm. Well, it yeah. sounds like you're you are able with somewhat less support than you're used to to rise to the challenge right now. Yeah, and it's also it's thinking of other people too. Like I'm spending a lot of time with my students. Because, you know, you, that's the thing, too. Like it, It's easy to think, like, this is a big disaster for me, but to recognize it's a big disaster for everyone. We spoke for a while more and then ended the conversation with a surprise gift from Nick to me. All right. Um, stay healthy. I, yeah, there's a really ahead. cool, I can see a really cool cloud out my window now, um, and I'll send it up to you. It's, uh, oh, good. It's coming your way. Just keep an eye out for it. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to sit out here for as long as possible and wait for it. <laughs> it shouldn't be long. It shouldn't be long. All right. Well, All right, take Rachel. care, Nick. Yeah. We'll yeah, for this I episode, yeah. some Love members you. of the Love Commonplace Book Club wow. will receive copies of Nick Flynn's "This Is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire," courtesy of W. W. Norton. Also, Nick Flynn's "Stay: Threads, Conversations, Collaborations," courtesy of Z Books. Here's a personal update from listener Allie. My name is Allie. I've been having a hard few months, and for some reason, TV and music just weren't doing the trick anymore. And my friend recommended Commonplace to me because I write poetry and I love reading poetry. And I was like, yeah, okay, podcast, whatever. And then After the first five minutes of the first episode I listened to, I was hooked. Um, I've listened to every episode since. I listen to it when I get in the shower in the morning. I listen to it when I wake up at three in the morning and can't go back to sleep. 
I listen to it in the car and I've been driving a lot. So that's a lot. I'm on my second round of listening to the episodes. So I just wanted to say thank you for giving me an escape when all my other escapes weren't working anymore. Um, and it's an escape that enlightens me and invigorates me, makes me think, makes me excited, makes me hopeful, makes me feel less alone. It's a really, really special place. So thank you, Rachel. And thank you, Commonplace. Thank you, Allie, for calling in to let us know how you're doing. I spoke to Erica Meitner in early April at her home in Blacksburg, Virginia, two days before Passover. Erica and I have been friends a long time, and she's one of the first people I go to for teaching or writing advice. We'd been texting each other frequently since I came to Maine, but by the end of March, both of us were so busy, it seemed like we'd never be able to figure out how to carve out enough time to record even a short conversation. One of the things Erica and I have talked about for years is how busy we are and how we want to find more balance, more space, more peace in our life without sacrificing our ambition or our commitment to our relationships, to teaching and parenting and writing well. Just as Tina Chang and I laughed at the idea that the pandemic was a kind of writing retreat and a break from responsibilities, Erica found herself busier than ever and not in the most satisfying ways. Having all her travel canceled has not been a relief. Travel is deeply important and rejuvenating for Erica. Erica is a professor at Virginia Tech, as is her partner. When we spoke, Erica's partner was in the process of taking about 2,000 students online for economics classes. Erica had spent part of her morning calling newly admitted MFA students and having virtual office hours. In addition to her usual classes, this semester, Erica taught a pilot class in the arts and social transformation, which she did synchronously online. She said the class was going really well. Poet Rebecca Gale Howell had just virtually visited the class to talk about Appalachia and place-based writing. Erica texted me, now good, and I called right away, not wanting to miss my chance. The first thing Erica said was, I'm going to tell you how much homeschooling my children sucks. <laughs> because my morning was not good. Yeah. I think people would uh, like to hear from someone who's having a hard time. <laughs> because a lot, you're not alone. <laughs> she didn't want to complain or badmouth her kids, but I egged her on, wanting her to describe what I've heard from many, many parents, especially parents of school-aged children under 10 or 11, that homeschooling is hard. Yeah, it's been a little bit challenging. Um, so I have a seven-year-old, as you know, um, who's a first grader. And I have a 13-year-old who is a seventh grader. We split up the days, so I take mornings on the homeschool front. And um, I spent all morning this morning <laughs> uh, struggling to explain basic subtraction. Mm -hmm. um, we uh, tried to do some journal writing. didn't go very well. Um, <laughs> there, there were some tears. Um, so I busted out paint chips I've had in my teaching arsenal for about 20 years and put them out on the table. And we tried to write poems about colors. 
that lasted about three minutes, and then we decided to try to plan our Passover Zoom seder. Mm-hmm. Um, me and my seven-year-old, and we made it through watching three cartoons about the plagues and Exodus. Um, <laughs> and there were just a lot of questions about boils, about life, mm-hmm. about hail, <laughs> about blood, about slaying of the firstborn. Um, yeah, so then we decided to write the worm diary about the plagues, mm-hmm. and he drew a picture of the blood Seder mask that we have. We have plague masks mm-hmm. that we wear during the in-person Seder, so he drew a picture of the blood mask, and I have no idea how I'm going to explain that to his <laughs> very, very nice, but not Jewish, first grade teacher. <laughs> um, so... Oh. That that was my morning, part of it, before I gave up and uh, we went outside and picked up lunch from the bus. Um, Mm -hmm. So our county buses had been going around to um, their normal bus stops, but instead of distributing, you know, like picking up and dropping off kids, they've been distributing library books to the kids Mm -hmm. um, and distributing lunches for all the children, not just kids who get free lunch or whatever. So the Mm -hmm. kids love to go out and get bus lunch every day. I guess I'll put this out there publicly just in case it helps someone else feel better. Mm-hmm. I haven't been able to read anything right now other than work emails and the news. I just don't have time. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't been able to write anything other than work emails <laughs> um, because I just don't have time. And so if anyone else is in that particular boat because you have small children, mm-hmm. um or even because you just don't have the mental wherewithal, I am there with you. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that's been really helpful for me, honestly, has been walking. Um, about anywhere from 50 to 80% of my homeschool curriculum right now is giant Pokemon Go walks with my kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, occasionally when I can get out by myself, I'll even do a second walk sometimes. Um, and I know for people in cities, that's not super helpful um, because that can be a really fraught experience for some people. But for me, at least, it's been really instrumental in making me kind of uh, keep my wits about me and forgiving myself for the fact that this is not a productive time for me. This is not a writing colony. Erica and I spent some time talking about Passover. She couldn't find the shank bone that she knew was somewhere in her freezer and felt badly about buying the very last brisket at the Kroger's. She was worried about her matzo ball soup. I told her the secret to light matzo balls is not to touch them too much. Erica has had many Passovers in Blacksburg, but this was my first Passover outside of New York City in over 20 years. I told Erica about my misadventures trying to buy matzah, horseradish, and gefilte fish at Hannaford's, and the extreme discomfort I felt listening to my husband unsuccessfully describe ritual wine to every liquor shop in the area, and then explain the anti-Semitic myth of blood libel to our 12-year-old. Even though I was barely leaving my house, I felt very conspicuously Jewish. Erica had invited me to participate in an online reading for Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, and I knew she'd been working on a project about anti-Semitism. 
I asked her if the pandemic had increased her concerns about anti-Semitism. It's interesting because my neighborhood that I live in now is probably about 30% Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a bigger concern down here right now has been a lot of anti-Asian hate crime or um, discrimination. Yeah. And have so, you have you seen have you seen that going on in your in your neighborhood or heard about it from not in my neighborhood, but we definitely have town like we have a bunch of different town Facebook groups where people who have been out shopping, you know, at the local Walmart or other places have experienced discrimination and and really awful things. So um I think for me right now it's actually it's actually less awful this time of year than it normally is in the sense of my children are normally forced to participate in a lot of like Easter crafting. There's the like various neighborhood Easter egg hunts that my children love to do that I stopped not letting, you know, like they, they were always allowed to do it, but I had very mixed feelings about it. Now, of Mm -hmm. course, no one's having an Easter egg hunt because of social distancing and stay at home orders. So a lot of the things that have made me, that have made it more complicated to live here have been eliminated. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, and the difficulties that I've always had in finding some of the things I need to fulfill, like our ritual practices, other people are now experiencing those who normally would, you know, even if they're living in urban areas. So it's, I think it's actually the opposite. It's more that other people are starting to feel the way that I've been feeling for the last 13 years living here, mm-hmm. rather than me feeling like, you know, that this is harder in some way, this is actually easier for me. Like my, um, 13 year old, we just had to cancel his bar mitzvah. Mm-hmm. But, um, when we go to synagogue here, it's usually about 10 people and everyone's like over the age of 60, mm-hmm. but we've been able to shul hop from our couch on Friday nights and Saturday mornings to like visit the schools in Brooklyn now. Mm-hmm. Um, yesterday while I was out walking, I got to watch the KGB Monday night bar reading series. And these are all things that were geographically completely inaccessible to me. So it's been interesting watching my world widen in certain ways too. Mm-hmm. All right, my dear, what are you going to do next? See, it's 4.39. So I have exactly... Um, 21 minutes to answer the 17 work emails that came oh my in God. while we were talking. <laughs> and then at exactly five, I'm going to go downstairs and start making a giant brisket. <laughs> and I'm challenging you to a 2021 brisket off at some point. I love this idea. <laughs> All right. Good luck. Stay safe. Goodbye. I'll provide both our recipes, Erica says hers is horrifying, as patron extras. In 2017, I recorded a conversation in my kitchen in New York City with Sabrina Ora Mark. It was just a few hours before the first night of Passover, and Sabrina and I sat close together, surrounded by half-finished dishes, the smell of brisket and matzo ball soup getting in our clothes and hair. It was three years ago, but feels like another world altogether. I wrote to Sabrina, who I knew was sheltering at home in Georgia with her husband and two children, and received this email in response. Hi, Rachel. Oh, 
I'm so sorry for taking forever. I'm in a hole of homeschooling and teaching and writing my column in a blur. But here I am with my messy head. Oh, Rachel, I hope you are finding pockets of peace. What is peace? And your father is healing and safe and sound and sons are finding their way through this plague. What the fuck? Noah, Eli, and I watched a snail for about an hour yesterday. That was good. It's very fast for a snail, said Noah. And it was. I just finished teaching Elizabeth Tova Bailey's The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating. It's so good. And learned a lot, I think, about survival and evolution and staying still. I wonder if your sons might like it, too. By column, Sabrina is referring to the column she writes for the Paris Review called Happily, which focuses on fairy tales and motherhood. If you haven't read it, you're in for a true delight. Beware, though, reader, this column, like Sabrina's poetry and prose, is strange, gorgeous, and perhaps literally as well as literarily enchanting. I have been moved by every installment, especially the most recent one, which is called Fuck the Bread, the Bread is Over. Sabrina describes many years of applying for and never being hired for professorships. This is all too familiar to me, even the language she and I have heard when people ask illegal questions about our families and personal lives, questions that we really have no choice but to answer. I have no real job, Sabrina says to her mother in the column when she is turned down for yet another job after a three-day campus visit. Of course you have a job, Sabrina's mother says. I have no flour, Sabrina says. Fuck the bread, says her mother again. The bread is over. Sabrina writes, And maybe the bread, as I've always understood it, really is over. The new world order is rearranging itself on this planet and settling in. Our touchstone is changing color. Our criteria for earning a life, a living, are mutating like a virus that wants badly to stay alive. I text a friend, I can't find bread flour. She lives in Iowa. I can see the wheat, she says, growing in the field from outside my window. I watch a video on how to harvest wheat. I can't believe I have no machete. I can't believe I spent so many hours begging universities to hire me. I forgot how to learn to separate the chaff from the wheat and gently grind. Read Sabrina's column. Read her books. Like Erica, I am barely reading anything other than Sabrina's columns. Too much Twitter, and even though I swear I will not read anything COVID-related before bed, which for me is when I'm most likely to have a panic attack, I often find myself deep in the COVID-19 rabbit hole, my phone glowing in the dark like kryptonite. And as you all know, it's a deep, deep rabbit hole. On the nights when I have more self-control, I read about training my puppy, or just a few pages at a time, slowly, slowly, yes, at a snail's pace, one might say, the book Sabrina recommended, The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating, which is excellent. Next on my list, sitting on my bedside table, is the new memoir by Marcelo Hernandez Castillo, Children of the Land, which I very much look forward to reading. 
Here is the beautiful audio message I received from Marcelo. Hi there, Rachel. Um, hi there, Commonplace Podcast um, team and listeners. I am writing back uh, to update, um, I guess, the situation from the last, from when I first uh, appeared on the Commonplace podcast when they did an episode on the Andaki poets with myself, um, Janine, Joseph, and Javier Zamora. Um, I just wanted to. Uh, reach out and say um, how sorry I am uh, about how difficult things have been for you, you know, pre-COVID and then during COVID, but I was really heartened and uh, glad to hear how things have changed since leaving New York City, that you were able to leave, and um, that you're making, you know, uh, big changes, uh, and from what I gathered, um, important changes in your life so um, that's really really good to hear and I hope things just continue to get better and better for you your family your son um, I'm in Northern California I am back in my hometown where I was not born but raised and I have my mother living with me in my apartment along with my younger brother and in the apartment is uh, myself, my wife, my baby, who is two and a half, my dog, and then my mom and my younger brother. It is a blessing to have my mother in my son's life and that she came to live with us before uh, the outbreak because otherwise she would have spent this entire time without uh seen her grandson and so I guess I'm fortunate there. Um, it's been somewhat difficult for me here because um, I uh, deal with uh, a bipolar disorder and so I have to continue seeking care um, and getting my blood drawn um, very frequently so that they can continue to monitor my levels um, of whatever it is that they're testing. And so I've had to do lots of uh, also telemed um, appointments, which doesn't feel like it's as engaging. Um, and really, I it's very difficult to write. It's very difficult to read. Um, it's very difficult to concentrate. I really couldn't even answer an email. And everybody was saying the same thing, just how terrible they felt that they weren't getting a lot done. And everybody was pretty much saying the same thing to kind of, um, I guess, uplift everyone else and saying that um, now is not the time to necessarily get bent out of shape about not uh, getting things done, about not being productive and all of that and about not valuing ourselves or deeming ourselves less valuable because we are less quote-unquote productive and we have not produced as much. And so 
I guess my challenges primarily are psychological and spiritual because I'm also a member of uh, AA and it's been very difficult to remain in place, to not go to my home group, to not see um, my sponsor and you know I've been having a lot of drinking dreams um, and in my dreams I have completely uh, uh, thrown away my sobriety and I'm drinking and I wake up really uh, scared because um, I wake up thinking that I actually did um, relapse but it takes me a few few seconds or a few minutes to kind of get my bearings um, back in order and then I realized it was just a dream but uh, those kinds of dreams only happen when uh, I am more susceptible to relapse and when it's a lot more difficult so I'm playing close attention to that zoom meetings for AA haven't seemed to be working for me so I'd be interested in, in, in hearing who else contributes if they're talking about any kind of um, addictions, how they're handling it. Um, because it has been quite difficult for me. I guess the fact that my mother is here with my son and they get to interact um, is a great thing. It is a good time for me to get back into a routine and establish the kinds of patterns and routines that have kept me healthy, um, emotionally healthy and uh, mentally stable. So um, even though it seems like everything is uncertain, I have been able to uh, establish my routine every day. We eat breakfast at the, at the same time. Then, um, uh, you know, there's a time where I put my son to sleep for a nap, then we have lunch and so on and so forth. So it's very organized um, and I think that's essential. Coping, I started jogging again. I started running again. Um, so I run on the levees and on at these uh, river bottoms, these football fields near the river where I live where there's nobody there. And that's been a, a really good coping mechanism um, because of the just so much anxiety that has been that I've built up running really alleviates that. So, uh, you know, we're still doing Poets work. In fact, we just selected our two winners and we will be announcing them soon. So by the time this airs, the winners will probably already be announced by then. So, but I'm really excited about this year's winners. Um, and I'm really just so uh, humbled and in awe of the talent that continues to come in from uh, writers who are or have been formally undocumented. Uh, it is undocumented people who are um, one of the, uh, a very susceptible community, um, both in terms of class um, and because, you know, undocumented people aren't going to be receiving any kind of stimulus check. Um, California just passed uh, something that they will be receiving a thousand dollars but it's not clear yet and DACA is also um, on the chopping block so tense times and I guess I will leave this recording by saying 
that I am grateful for all the work that Rachel has done. Thank you for sharing that with us, Marcelo. I am so appreciative of the work that you have done and continue to do. I was delighted to see that since sending us this message, Marcelo was named Poet Laureate of both Yuba and Sutter Counties of California. A few copies of Children of the Land, courtesy of HarperCollins, will be available to some members of the Commonplace Book Club. For this episode, Commonplace's partner charitable organization will donate $250 to the National Undocu Fund. You can find links to other mutual aid organizations and charitable organizations on our website, commonpodcast.com. A few years ago, I shared an email from a listener named Logan. Logan, currently living in Madison, Wisconsin, reached out again in response to the recent call for personal updates. Here is his email. Host, I had a cold dread thinking of my loved ones in New York City. They're doing well, but afraid. Anxious for them, for my wife as she deals with patients, and for myself, I try to return to normalcy today, doing one of my most delightful of solitary activities while I sheltered in place. I played an old episode of Commonplace, Jericho Brown, episode 16. I haven't cried like that since my release from prison two years ago. That one had been an organic, knowable outburst. I don't know why this one happened, but it did. It just rolled out of me jaggedly for what seemed like hours, but was likely only a few minutes. It was a profound, weird, ontological breakage that lava-lamped into an exhausted, pure warmth. Thank you for everything you've done to make poetry come to life for the most unlikely people. Episodes like number 16 and innumerable others are investments you made what seems like entire eons ago, and they're still walloping about years later. I know it hasn't been easy labor. You stretch the walls and try new things. Shelter is one of those words that means more than one thing. It's an act, and it's a feeling. I don't think that anybody knows that better than the poets. I didn't begin this email with any telos, and I don't think I'm ending it with much either but I felt that today there was no denying that commonplace was a gargantuan part of what made the time survivable. Something I didn't know I needed until it hit me. I hope that everyone around you is staying safe, supportive, familial, respectful, human. Listener. Alicia Ostreicher is in Manhattan, living with her husband, Jerry. I spoke with her in mid-April. Spring had begun to show itself in Maine and most certainly in New York, but Alicia wasn't able to go out and see it. Good morning. Hello. Good morning, Alicia. It's Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Good morning. Hi. My husband and I are in New York City. We're in our apartment where we are in hard lockdown because we are both over 80, mm-hmm. 
and he has pre-existing conditions, which essentially means if he catches the virus, he's likely to die. Mm. So we're not going out. We're not taking walks. Mm. Um, I go down five flights of stairs and get the mail and walk up five flights of stairs because I don't want to even use the elevator. Uh-huh. We are we are being what some people might consider excessively cautious, but we don't want to get sick. We don't want to mm-hmm. die. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been you, Jerry, have been out of the apartment. We, um, I think I was last. Well, I I I go every three days or so to get the mail. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't go at all. He hasn't been out of the apartment for over a month. Mm-hmm. And I miss the spring. So I ask all my friends who have access to, to trees and flowers to take photographs and send them to me. Um, and the only thing I can do in return for that is collect jokes okay. and, co- <laughs> and pass the jokes along. And I'll tell you, the jokes are getting fewer and fewer. There were a lot of jokes a month ago, and there are not a lot now. So I tried to gather good music. I try to gather performances that I can share with people or recommend to people. There's not much I can do. Are you writing at all? I am not writing. Mm -hmm. Um, My heart is a stone. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a a dried, a dried up well for Mm -hmm. the time being. I'm sure something will come along. Something always does. But um, I just had a chapbook out. I'm supposed to have a selected and new in September that they assure me they are going to do at the University of Pittsburgh Press. And either they will or they won't. Mm-hmm. But I have, I, have no, I have no new poetry projects. All I have is I'm going through my electronic files which years, like two de- two decades of electronic files that are a mess, that are like something the cat got into, and I'm trying <laughs> to straighten them out because they all have to go to a library at some point. And how are you managing to stay in contact with your family and close friends? Well, God bless Zoom. I mean, sometimes it's just phone calls. Plain old, mm-hmm. ordinary phone calls. Sometimes it's Skype. Um, and right now, we are we are booked for a Zoom every night of the week. That's awesome. <laughs> it's like cocktail time. Who are we Zooming tonight? Mm-hmm. It's the trees and flowers I miss mm. because I'm a I'm a fairly solitary person. Anyhow, I've been doing most of my teaching, teaching 
in an MFA program at Drew University for the last, I don't know, 10 years, I think, uh, where we we have a residence for 10 days twice a year, but otherwise um, I communicate with my students by email. So I'm, acc- I'm accustomed, I'm accustomed to corresponding with people I care about. Many of my Many of my dearest friends, my poetry friends, are far-flung everywhere, so we email. Um, I'm like a little hesitant to ask this question, but I can't not ask. Are you and Jerry getting on each other's nerves, or is this a, a you know, second honeymoon? <laughs> this is a very reasonable question. <laughs> and I think, I think we may be getting on each other's nerves less. Than usually. I mean, we're both we're both difficult people. We're both creative and difficult and busy, busy people. Um, and I annoy him in various ways, and he annoys me in various ways. But um, we also have a lot of fun together. Mm-hmm. And and now we have our routines. We can't go to the gym, so we exercise every day at eleven. Mm-hmm. And then we shower, and in the afternoon, at some point, we do the crossword puzzle, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then we cook. Mm-hmm. And the cooking, the cooking adventures have been a lot of fun. We think we think a lot about what are we going to have for dinner. <laughs> What's the oh, best? Wonderful meal? soups. We've made some great soups. And we've decided um, alternate days to be vegetarian. Mm. And you can't believe how many different kinds of beans and lentils we have produced. Mm. Are you getting all your food from delivery? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We get everything delivered and then we wipe everything down. Mm-hmm. With a Clorox, a diluted Clorox, and a paper towel, it's all—it's all routine. It's like a dance. And how is your level of um, fear? I mean, do you feel like you're safe, or do you feel constantly worried? Um, I don't—I don't feel constantly worried. I tend to wake up at night, um, being hit by fear. And we don't talk about that very much. Mm-hmm. We we do our routines. We have a good time. We watch operas. You know, the Met is streaming free operas. We watch more operas in the last few weeks than I think we have watched live in a lifetime. But <laughs> I'll wake up at night fearful, mm-hmm. of course. And partly it's fear of dying. Mm-hmm. Partly, it's fear of getting sick and not dying, but giving my sickness to Jerry and then he dies. Mm. And partly, it's fear of how the hell long is this going to go on? Mm-hmm. It would be nice to think, oh, well, we can start going out by the end of May. Oh, that's a long time, and maybe we won't be able to start going out for much longer than that. And 
I think it's partly the unknown that's getting to everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's like, um, I heard some someone being interviewed on the box comparing this crisis with invaders from outer space. You know, mm. It's like invisible invaders. And what do they do in the movies? <laughs> There's always a hero and a heroine who combat the invaders, and now we can't do that. Right. How how does the um, this kind of quality of the great unknown and the fear compare to other uh, either personal or global experiences that you've lived through? I mean, I'm thinking of you know um, uh, you know any other health issues you or Jerry have had in the past, or the Vietnam War. Or like what? What? How does this compare? Crises we have known. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Crises we have known, of course. Yeah. Um, The Vietnam War was one kind of crisis, and as you know, having having my son born right after we invaded Cambodia and shot the the kids at Kent State. Remember that? Mm Nineteen seventy. Um, a time completely rooted in my consciousness, scorched into my consciousness, because having a boy baby born in time of war and knowing that time of war is all of human history Mm -hmm. um, really moved my entire mind around. So that was one kind of crisis and, and and a lot of writing has come out of that. Um, I'm not a pacifist, but I think wars are basically ugly and stupid, and we shouldn't be having them or even getting close to them the way we are. And to jump from 1970 to 2020, and a president who is an evil clown... Hmm and could get us into a war at any moment um, is itself a cause of, you know, deep and constant fear. Fear is probably the wrong word. Anxiety. Well, he does as much harm as he, as he can. When I recorded um, our last conversation, um, sitting in your living room, or in your dining room, actually, which it was leading up to the election, the 2016 election, and you said, um, and you were unfortunately right, that you did think that Trump not only could win, but probably would win. And I was incredulous. I was very naive. (laughs) Um, I'm wondering if you, when you think about the future, you know, what do you, do you feel hopeful? Do you feel pessimistic? I mean, you know, about Trump, but also about like, what's going to, what's going to happen after this virus? Will, will the world go back to the way it was? What, what, what do you foresee? Or are you trying not to think too far I, ahead? I, I find myself unable to think very rationally far ahead, but in my mind, 
I picture several possible paths. We may take them all at once. And one is, oh, we just muddle along as we have been, and history will continue, global history will continue in the way that it was going to go, which I think this is a prediction. Um, And I was predicting it long before Trump became our fearless leader, um, that the 21st century will be the Chinese century, became the American century, the 21st century will be the Chinese century. There's, I don't think anything can prevent that, even if they have a civil war, which they're terrified of. Um, we had a civil war in the 19th century. It was devastating, and we emerged out of it stronger. Mm. Another thing that could happen is some kind of mysterious illumination. Mm. People all over the world could actually get the idea that we're on this one planet and that it's our job to conserve it and preserve it and love it and each other. This could happen. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's very likely, but I like to hold in my mind the possibility that this is that this is a path we and others can follow, and it's it's also a path that has already been begun. And then another path that has already been begun is the horrible path of the death of democracy, the path the path of dictatorship, the path of increased hostility among groups and um, and between and among nations that's that's another possible path mm-hmm. and it could be that all of those will happen simultaneously that is as far as my thinking has gone and it's <laughs> not very far do you have any advice and it could be small it could be like you know make sure you listen to the opera uh, you know, or it could be big uh, about, you know, how to get through a time of great uncertainty or how to, you know, enjoy every day knowing that there is, um, you know, death in, uh, you know, right out, right, you know, outside the door. It's not even, it's not even really advice, but I think to have routines Mm-hmm. is very helpful, and I have developed routines since since being in lockdown and since being so unsure about everything the future is going to offer. Mm-hmm. I, I have found that keeping, keeping my ship steady on mm-hmm. and having... Having routines, doing things I know I will enjoy, anticipating them, having a long-range task to do is very helpful. Mostly what, what I kind of live by my mantra is a Jewish one, and it's in, 
it's in the ethics of the fathers in Talmud, and it is. Um, if I am not for myself, who is for me? If I am for myself alone, what am I? And if not now, when? And that that kind of carries me along. We need love at this time, especially. We always need love, but now we know we do. And I think we, in order to be able to love others, our family, our friends, and at long distance, everyone who is taking so many more risks than I am, we have to take care of ourselves in order to be able to take care of other people. We have to do both. Alicia Ostreicher's forthcoming The Volcano and After, courtesy of Pitt Poetry, will be available and shipped in September to some members of the Commonplace Book Club. And finally, here is a new piece of writing about COVID-19, written by Nobel Prize-winning author Olga Tokarczuk, translated and read for us by Jennifer Croft. Greetings from Los Angeles. I wanted to share a translation that I just did of a meditation by Nobel laureate Olga Tokarczuk called Okno, or Window, about the pandemic and the future as she sees it through her window. From my window, I can see a white mulberry, a tree I'm fascinated by, one of the reasons I decided to live where I live. The mulberry is a generous plant. All spring and all summer, it offers dozens of avian families its sweet and healthful fruits. Right now, the mulberry hasn't gotten back its leaves, and so I see a stretch of quiet street, rarely traversed by anyone on their way to the park. The weather in Wrocław is almost summery, a blinding sun, blue sky, clean air. Today, as I was walking my dog, I saw two magpies chasing an owl from their nest. At a remove of just a couple of feet, the owl and I gazed into each other's eyes. Animals, too, seem to be waiting expectantly, wondering what's going to happen next. For the longest time, I have felt that there's been too much world, too much, too fast, too loud. So I'm not experiencing any isolation trauma, and it isn't hard on me at all not to see people. I'm not sorry that the cinemas have closed. I am completely indifferent to the fact that shopping centers have shuttered. I do worry, of course, when I think of all the people who have lost their jobs. But when I learned of the impending quarantine, I felt something like relief. I know many people felt similarly, even if they also felt ashamed of it. My introversion, long strangled and abused by hyperactive extroverts, has now brushed itself off and come out of the closet. I watch our neighbor through the window, an overworked lawyer I recently saw heading to work in the morning with his courtroom robe slung over his shoulder. Now in a baggy tracksuit, he battles a branch in the yard. He seems to be putting things in order. I see a couple of young people taking out an older dog that's been barely able to walk since last winter. The dog staggers while they patiently accompany him walking at the slowest pace, 
Making a great racket, the garbage truck picks up the trash. Life goes on and how, but at a completely different rhythm. I tidied up my closet and took out the newspapers we had already read and placed them in the paper recycling bin. I repotted the flowers. I picked up my bicycle from the shop where it had been repaired. I have been enjoying cooking. Images from my childhood keep coming back to me. There was so much more time then and it was possible to waste it and kill it, spending hours just staring out the window, observing the ants, or lying under the table and imagining it to be the ark, reading the encyclopedia. Might it not be the case that we have returned to a normal rhythm of life, that it isn't from the that it isn't that the virus is a disruption of the norm, but rather exactly the reverse? that that hectic world from before the virus arrived was abnormal? The virus has reminded us, after all, of the thing we have been denying so passionately, that we are delicate creatures, composed of the most fragile material, that we die, that we are mortal, that we are not separated from the rest of the world by our humanity, by any exceptionality but that the world is instead a kind of great network in which we are enmeshed, connected with other beings by invisible threads of dependence and influence, that we are dependent on each other and that without any regard to how far apart the countries we come from are or what languages we speak or what color our skin is, we come down with the same illness, we share the same fears, we die the same death. It has made us realize that no matter how weak and how vulnerable we feel in the face of danger, we are also surrounded by people who are more vulnerable, to whom our help is essential. It has reminded us of how fragile our older parents and grandparents are and how very much they need our care. It has shown us that our frenetic movements imperil the world and it has raised a question we have barely had the courage to ask ourselves, namely, what is it exactly we keep going off in search of? The fear of getting sick has turned us back from a switchback road, has necessarily reminded us of the existence of the nests from which we hail and in which we feel safe. And in such a situation, even the most deciduous travelers will always press on to some kind of home. At the same time, sad truths have been revealed to us, that in a moment of danger, our thought resorts once more to the limiting and exclusive categories of nations and borders. In this difficult time, we have seen how very weak in practice is the idea of a European community. The EU has forfeited the match, delegating crisis time decisions to nation states. I consider the closing of borders to be the greatest loss of this fumbling time. Old chauvinism has returned, bringing back the division between ours and foreign. In other words, exactly what we have fought against these past decades in the hope that it would never again format our minds. The fear of the virus has automatically brought about the simplest statistic conviction that there must be foreigners to blame, that it is they who always introduce the threat. In Europe, the virus is from elsewhere, not ours, foreign. In Poland, everyone returning from abroad is now considered suspicious. The wave of 
slammed borders, the endless lines at crossings must have come as a shock to many young people. The virus reminds, borders exist and they're doing just fine. I also fear that the virus will rapidly alert us to another old truth, how very much we aren't equal. While some of us fly off on private planes to homes on islands or in woodland isolation, others will remain in cities operating power plants and waterworks. Still others will risk their lives working in shops and hospitals. Some will make money off the pandemic while others will lose everything they have. The coming crisis will undermine all of the principles that seem to us so sound. Many countries won't be able to handle it. And in the face of their downfalls, new orders will awaken, as is often the case after crises. We believe we are staying home, reading books and watching television. But in reality, we are readying ourselves for a battle over a new reality that we cannot even imagine, slowly coming to understand that nothing will ever be the same. The condition of mandatory quarantine, of billeting the family at home, may make us aware of things we have no desire to admit, that our family depletes us, that the bonds of our marriage have long since slackened. Our children will come out of quarantine addicted to the internet, and many of us will be aware of the senselessness and futility of circumstances in which we mechanically, by the power of inertia, remain. And what if the number of murders, suicides, and sufferers of mental illnesses grows? Before our eyes, the smoke is dispersing from the civilizational paradigm that has shaped us over the past 200 years, that we are the masters of creation, that we can do anything, that the world belongs to us. A new time draws near. You've been listening to episode 87 of Commonplace. This is the second in our special Global Roll Call episode series. This episode was produced by me, Jay Hammond, Christine LaRusso, and Doreen Wang, and sound edited by me and Jay Hammond. Thank you to all the listeners and guests who shared their stories with us. Thank you, Jay, for providing original music for this episode. You've been listening to Incidental Exercise, an improvisation duo featuring Jay Hammond and Yair Rubinstein with special guest Joe Westerlund. Many thanks to W.W. W. Norton, Z Books, Pitt Poetry, and HarperCollins for books for this episode, and to all the publishers who have supported Commonplace with books. Many, many thanks to our patrons. You make Commonplace possible. Wherever you are, if you're still in lockdown, if you're cautiously venturing out, if you're learning to stay still, if you're walking, if you're staving off panic, if you're cooking or cleaning or not reading or exercising or not exercising, thank you, listener, for taking care of yourself and others, and thank you for listening. <laughs>